I think that, you know, you could imagine people getting more creative over time and, you know, maybe using up the full $250 billion of loan authority, which would be a game changer for cementing the utility central role, frankly, in this um, energy transition. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. The Inflation Reduction Act established the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, or the EIR program, under the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office and appropriated $5 billion to help fund certain clean energy and carbon reduction projects through fiscal year 2026. In June, the Loan Programs Office released new guidance for the Title 17 Clean Energy Financing Program, which includes the EIR program. On today's episode, we're fortunate to have back Jigger Shaw, Director of DOE's Loan Programs Office, to discuss this new guidance with EEI's Deputy General Counsel of Clean Energy and Climate, Alex Bond, and they'll also address some of the most common questions about the program. Our earlier episode with Jigger aired in January and provided a more detailed overview of the EIR program. So be sure to listen to the episode titled Reinvesting in Energy Infrastructure, if you want to know more about the program. Now, I'll hand the mic over to Alex so we can get started. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Jigger, it's great to have you back on the show to talk more about the EIR program. We really appreciate you you taking the time to chat, so welcome. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. I, I was worried that after the last time, you know, you wouldn't let me back. <laughs> you are always welcome. We, we really appreciate the time. So before we sort of dive into the specifics, uh, to refresh our, our listeners on, on just what the EIR program is, can you give sort of a brief overview and explain some of the updates and clarifications your team recently released, including sort of what qu- projects qualify for financing, what's defined as energy infrastructure? I think since you were last on with us in January, you guys have been very busy. So I wanted to give you a chance to update you, uh, everyone on the work. Yeah. I mean, just to remind everybody, the this is all under the Title 17 framework, which we've had since really the beginning of the loan programs office, and even in our heyday there in 2009 to 2011, there's a new title called 1706 that was added here, which, you know, we uh, refer to as the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program. And the goal of the program really is to help is to really recognize that there's a lot of existing assets, not just in the electricity space, right? Old coal plants, coal mines, natural gas sites, uh, transmission lines, et cetera, but also in the oil and gas space. So think refineries, pipelines that are no longer in use, uh, tank farms, et cetera. Um, And that this dislocation basically, uh, you know, creates a lot of assets that may actually go out of use and become brownfields, frankly, for the future, unless we're intentional about finding a new life for them, right? And converting these coal plants into nuclear plants, as we saw Duke indicate today uh, in their press releases, or when you look at uh, a lot of the um, old natural gas plants that folks are looking at running only one to 8% 8% of the time and, you know, really co-locating with solar and battery storage to, you know, make better use of that interconnection point. And so there's a lot of uh, really innovative uh, and creative thinkers out there that are thinking about this. You know, when we finished the guidance document and uh, and the interim final rule, um, and then we just, you know, finished getting comments back, which 
will then help us uh, put out the final rule. You know, what we found was there's a lot of confusion around, you know, what is existing infrastructure and what is uh, new infrastructure. And, and you know, some of those things we have answers for, and which we can go through uh, today. And some of those things, frankly, um, we're going to be evaluating on a case-by-case basis. So, so for instance, if you're uh, reusing an interconnection point, but you're putting the assets uh, not technically on the same piece of land, but like right adjacent to that piece of land, you know, are you using existing infrastructure or not? The answer is maybe, uh, you know, so come to us and we're happy to talk about it. I think the other thing that's different today compared to the last time we talked, though, is that we have got a lot of traction. So we've now gotten $16 billion worth of loan requests that we've received from electric utilities, from independent power producers and others. Um, and we've got another probably about $14 billion worth of loan applications I think we're expecting to come in over the next 45 days. So I think you're seeing real traction. And as you know, in the electric utility space, there's a lot of folks who fight to go third. Um, and so now that we've got <laughs> folks coming in first and second, you know, like uh, the water's warm, folks are coming in. Uh, we, we like to be on the podium, just maybe not on the first step on the podium. So <laughs> that, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, just to, to to keep us moving here, you touched on this a little bit uh, in, you know, you, you started alluding to it in your answer there. You touched on this a lot in your last episode that you were on with us. What are sort of the potential effects that the level of financing that we're talking about, billions and billions of dollars in loans, what, what can that have for the clean energy transition? And sort of what are we looking at in terms of impact? Yeah. So the way that the program works is it's basically $5 billion of credit subsidy. And then we have, you know, as much loan authority as that $5 billion pays for up to a $250 billion cap. So it's not really $250 billion loan authority. It's really $5 billion of credit subsidy, which basically is us paying the points on the loan, right? So now the question becomes, how risky are those loans? Now, for independent power producers, those are risky, right? So like, for instance, we just designated that all of the um, tranche one projects in Puerto Rico should qualify under 1706. You know, Puerto Rico is bankrupt. So you know, like, I mean, the, the utility, sorry, is bankrupt, right? So ultimately, the credit subsidy there is going to be pretty high. Now, you know, we separately have investor-owned utilities in the continental 48 states applying, and those folks generally have investment-grade credits, and so the credit subsidy is going to be very low. And so when those loans come in, the amount of credit subsidies that we spend there is pretty small. So it really depends on the overall portfolio of people who apply. I think when we went through the first time through, we counted roughly $86 billion worth of interest from all different walks of life, right? So that's electric utilities, transmission, independent power producers. And then a couple of projects on the oil and gas side where folks have old pipelines that used to run natural gas that they're re-sleeving for CO2 or ammonia or whatever. And, you know, that was sort of in that $86 billion range, right? Now, as people start using the program, we're starting to hear of more interest. So for instance, we've gotten another five utility companies that have come to us recently that have said, you know what? We were not really that enthusiastic about reconductoring, but we found religion and we actually are far more enthusiastic than we originally thought we were. And so that's basically changing out 30 plus year old transmission lines with new materials that can you know, carry 50% more or double, uh, in some cases, the amount of um, capacity on that line, which is amazing, right? So that alone, if you did all of the lines in the entire country that were over 30 years old um, and reconducted them all, there'd be like another $75 billion worth of cash coming out of uh, this program, 
which would be awesome, right? Like to create that much resiliency and reliability on the grid by being able to move power around for polar vortexes and and uh, heat domes, right? Um, we're also hearing for the first time, as I suggested with Duke, but also with others, that people are actually starting to tiptoe back into nuclear, which is fantastic, right? And so you've got Ontario Power Group in Darlington talking about a four-pack of G Hitachi BWX 300s. That four-pack alone is probably, you know, just round numbers here. Let's call it over $10 billion of expense. And so, you know, so it doesn't take a lot of these coal to nuclear conversions to see, you know, $100 billion worth of need there, right? If folks want to go that direction. So so I think the $86 billion is sort of a starting point. And I think that, you know, you could imagine people getting more creative over time and, you know, maybe using up the full $250 billion of loan authority, which would be a game changer for cementing the utility's central role, frankly, in this um, energy transition. Momentum, momentum is a curious thing, and it's it's good to have it on your side. From from what it sounds like, you know, I, I also will say, like you guys did host a webinar on this recently, and a lot of our companies had questions in the tiptoeing into momentum kind of vibe. Uh, you know, some said that a decade ago there were some hassles with past LPO programs, like long timelines. Um, how is LPO doing things today differently to alleviate some of those concerns? Because I know it's it's a it's a new day. This is a new program. How is LPO sort of transitioning and and meeting the challenge? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, I think that um, when we first started, the loan programs office had a lot of self-regulations, right? Things that were not in the statute, but we thought were prudent to add additional bureaucratic layers just to protect the taxpayer. Right. I think what we've realized is actually the the risk management group and the portfolio management group that we've created are doing a great job of protecting the taxpayer. So we don't really need these bureaucratic layers. And so so all these upfront fees that we used to charge are gone, right? So this, you know, hey, show us that you're serious. You have to pay a fee upfront. Like those are all gone, right? And there are fees, of course, on the back end, but, um, but not on the front end. Um, we've been able to really streamline the information that we collect. So there was a bunch of stuff that we used to collect upfront saying, well, we might need that information. We might not, but it's good to ask for it. We've now limited ourselves only to the information we know that we need upfront. And so that's made the process far faster to get through. And then if we do need the additional information, we'll ask for it. But most people don't need to provide us that additional information, particularly utilities, because they're largely guaranteeing the repayment of the loan via the Public Service Commission, via the the corporate, whereas we need a lot of that additional information when we do a project finance loan where we frankly, you know, don't have a credit that's guaranteeing repayment. And so that means that that whole process be- has become way more streamlined. I think from that perspective, it's um, really good. And then the last thing I think that we've done differently is that we're a far more transparent organization than we used to be. It used to be that like we just kept all of our cards closed and we were just worried about uh, being free with the information with our applicants. Today, I'd say that every time we get a tough question from a utility, we not only answer it for that utility, but then we try to create a blog post and put it on our blog and say, actually, here's the answer. This is how we got to our answer. And you know, here's the answer for everybody. And so I'd say that that, that has been really um, welcomed by a lot of our applicants as well. That, that has certainly been helpful. We 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 are we will we will not hesitate to note we follow your blog post pretty religiously so <laughs> we, we do read those um to, to ask one of those questions of you sort of on that specificity kind of approach here 
do companies need to file at the opco level or do they do it at the holding company level do you guys have a preference there is that something for that folks need to consider as they're coming to you guys with an application yeah it's a great question and one that i think we are in the middle of answering very specifically, but haven't yet gotten to the finish line on. Just to describe this for everybody, the vast majority of investor-owned utilities, not all, funny enough, but the vast majority have created these sort of mortgage bond arrangements where almost all of the assets of the utility are pledged to these mortgage bond holders, right? So they're not really in a position to share that collateral with us at the loan programs office. And so if we were to provide a loan, we always have to be senior or parapacific um, and so the question becomes, can we be senior around a certain set of assets, uh, which are not covered by the mortgage bond? Can we be senior by getting a um, first access to cash flow that comes from a special fee? that's put on the customer's bill that's only for the repayment of the 1706 program. Um, can we just not have any collateral um, and really just have the good faith and credit of the holding company uh, with the public service commissions uh, guaranteeing us repayment? Um, and so those are all uh, perfectly acceptable solutions. And we're running all of that to ground as we speak. But I think we can confidently say that um, one or more of those pathways will work. And so we're pretty confident. And now as a result of that, we're seeing, I think, an application from a utility coming in every two to three weeks um, because they're starting to realize that we will get to the bottom of exactly how to structure that here. Um, but we just have a couple more checks that we're going through. That, that sounds like a pretty flexible approach to it. That seems to make sense. You know, one of the things just to pick up on a thread, because uh, you answered several other questions I was going to ask you. So I'm going to jump ahead and say, sort of, <laughs> does, uh, does regulatory approval need to be received before applying for a loan or, you know, that public service commission process can take some time? Is that sort of something that you need to work out in advance or can that be worked out sort of in parallel with an application? Oh, it's definitely in parallel. And I'd say that, you know, I mean, obviously the, the electric utilities can do whatever they want, but what I'm what we're finding is that the vast majority of utilities have already filed an integrated resource plan with their commission. And what they're really doing is taking elements of their resource, integrated resource plan and saying, these should be eligible for 1706. Let's bring them in here. Let's reduce the cost of capital, reduce the impact to ratepayers on that particular part of the integrated resource plan and the capex spend. And then, as different utilities are adding different things, whether it's reconductoring or, for instance, we've gotten our first virtual power plant um, application that's come in from a utility where they're recognizing that demand flexibility is frankly the only way for them to cost effectively onboard electric vehicles and heat pumps and electrify everything. They just can't keep upgrading transformers and distribution circuits cost effectively. Other utilities are saying, oh, we'd like to take that element from that application and bring it to our application. And, and we allow for that. So when a utility comes in and says, here's our application, it's $4 billion, let's say, which is basically an average what we're seeing, then they start there, we start processing it, we, we you know, validate that it actually meets the statutory requirements. We send them a letter saying that it meets the statutory requirements. Now we can go into the due diligence phase. They at, at any time can say, let's add these other three measures that we've come up with and amend our application to add more uh, to it, right? Obviously, once we get to the finish line, they can't keep amending it. At some point, we have to finish. But right now, we're in that early stage where they start with $4 billion, then they add an extra billion, add an extra billion. And we're totally fine with that because we're all learning together around what this can be used for and how 
um, this can solve these broader problems of trust between, you know, the utilities, the public service commissions, the ratepayer advocates, some of the communities. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so to 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 keep walking down the road of sort of hyper specific questions that might be might be useful to someone. Yeah. I think that the next one that jumps to my mind is a, a collection of words that that usually either strike fear or confusion into people. Do applicants, uh, you know, have to comply with the Davis-Bacon Act, the Cargo Preference Act, the National Environmental Policy Act for projects in the application? So Davis-Bacon, CPA, NEPA, horrible acronyms or acronyms that confuse you. What's your sort of take on, on how folks have to deal with those requirements? Yeah, so all of those requirements are a part of using our office. And so I'd say that for utility companies, Davis-Bacon is not a big deal because um, most of them are already using union contractors and, you know, most folks are basically at Davis-Bacon anyway, so it doesn't really um, affect them. It's really more of a compliance thing. And even on the compliance side, most of the union contractors can do that. I'd say on the in, in the IPP side and other sides, there is a little bit more, you know, question there. But even there, what we're finding is that given the the workforce, uh, you know, shortages that we have today on the construction side. Um, most people are preferring union because they just have higher, you know, quality trained workers that can get the job done on the, you know, uh, faster schedule and a more confident budget. And so uh, Davis-Bacon only relates to construction. And so that um, that seems not to be a big problem. Are the On the Cargo Preference Act, um, you know, I think the big challenge with the Cargo Preference Act is basically that um, I think people just don't know how to engage with MARAD and what we've, which is the group that manages it over at the Department of Transportation. And what we've said to them is like, well, don't engage with MARAD, engage with us. We have a MARAD specialist and we can help you with that. And um, and and the reason not to engage with Marit is not because they're bad people. They're awesome people. So that's not the issue. The issue is that people always ask for a waiver. And that is such a four-letter <laughs> word. Please do not ever ask for a waiver. What they'll remind you is only the president can grant a waiver, so don't ask for that. But the way that the Cargo Preference Act works is there's, you know, let's call it 80, you know, Davis, there are 80 like Jones Act compliant international ships. And basically... Um, you just make best efforts to meet those ships to like, you know, to bring your goods over. Um, right now, just to be clear, all of those ships are fully booked just because there's a lot of stuff going on. And so they, if, if you make best efforts and you try to meet it within your timeline and they can't uh, find space on any of those vessels during a certain timeline, they can issue what they call DNA, which... The acronym I won't remember, but let's call it. I think determination of non uh, non availability. Non availability. There you right. go. Yeah. I knew I kept you around for a reason. <laughs> and so, so they can issue you a DNA and say you made best efforts. Thank you for trying. We couldn't find space on your ship, and so therefore you don't have to comply for this particular scope that you tried to comply for. Right. Um, there are other ways of dealing with it too. Like they might say you know, there's a schedule problem here, like just try to make good on it for future shipments. And so we haven't found that the Cargo Preference Act is actually that scary. It's just scary because, you know, folks haven't looked at it in the past. On NEPA, um, it depends on what we're looking at here. I'd say that, you know, for the vast majority of these kinds of projects, um, 
you're talking about existing sites by definition, energy infrastructure reinvestment, Hexo, like these are existing coal plants, existing coal mines, et cetera. And so they're by definition disturbed land. That doesn't mean that a categorical exemption or you know exception that you would get is easy. Like we still have to write it up. Um, but like that generally is a pretty straightforward and you know, straightforward process, but people have to come into us early uh, before they start construction or whatever else and, you know, get that designation completed. We are also um, working with the general counsel at the Department of Energy to get expanded categories uh, for categorical exemptions um, from the, the Council on Environmental Quality that determines that. And that, um, if you'll recall, came out of the debt ceiling negotiations. Um, the CEQ put out um uh, guidelines that said that we are, as an administration, uh, looking to be more expansive in the way in which we can, you know, support uh, these projects so we can really have a bias towards building without, of course, compromising any of our uh, standards, but um, but not having, you know, any unnecessary hurdles. And so that process is being supported by DOE general counsel and is moving uh, quickly. And so like one of the areas that that includes is uh, is um, reconductoring, where right now we have a categorical exemption for 20 miles or less. We're trying to expand that and broaden it. Um, and that I think is going well. And then separately, we have determined that almost all of the ones who don't fall under a category exemption for the existing sites, because there's you know some nature of it that's sort of new. Um, I think that almost all of them, we can avoid an EIS um, and really uh, do an EA process, which is um, a six month process instead of a year and a half process. And so I think we basically are looking to make these hurdles as uh, low as possible, but they do exist and we just need to make sure that we're managing them. I, I will spare everybody my long and involved thoughts on NEPA, but I can say we were supportive of those efforts, you know, pretty broadly with you all, and and thank you guys for for doing that. I'll also say you're completely correct. Don't ask uh, Marad for a waiver from the CPA, but if you call and say I'm not asking for a waiver, the conversation becomes really nice very, very, very quickly. That's my They're experience. They're really wonderful <laughs> people. I mean, it's really good to work with them. You just got to make sure you use the right words. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what sort of one more, one more real quick question here or two real, real quick questions for you, Jigger, uh, what are sort of the ongoing monitoring and reporting requirements, assuming we've gone all the way from idea to concept to loan, we have the loan, we're moving forward. So what are sort of the ongoing requirements that we'd have, assuming we've gotten to the place where we're actually pushing, pushing money out the door and doing projects? First, I mean... I never allow myself to think that far ahead. I mean, <laughs> I we have a lot of work to do just to get these loans in the door and then processed and closed. But but I appreciate the question. I think so so the way that the loan programs office works is we've got, you know, an outreach and business development team, you know, Leslie Rich, Dan Cross Call. We've got some extraordinary people working on the 1706 program. Um we then, uh, you know, underwrite the loan with our origination team. We work with our technical and environmental division. We work with our general counsel. Uh, we work with our risk group and we get these things closed. It then goes into the portfolio management group. And that's the group that we're talking about that, that, that does this work. In general, I'd say that there's a couple of pieces here. Um, so during construction, clearly we have monitoring requirements to make sure that people are uh, meeting the Davis-Bacon requirements 
um, you know, working with the Cargo Preference Act and, you know, honoring their NEPA requirements. And so that, you know, that 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 work is part of the monitoring work that we do. Once the assets are completed and now just in an, a loan, right, when you think like Vogel Unit 3, um, then um, what we're doing there is uh, making sure that uh, that we're doing annual uh, efforts around the credit quality of the loan, of the utility. That's mostly work on our side, frankly, so very little work for the applicant. We may have a couple of information requests. We do check on um, any requirements around community benefits that they have made commitments on or um, if they've made commitments around um, you know, hiring a certain amount of workers on the operating side and paying them a certain wage, then they're, they they usually make those commitments because they get some state incentives. And so, you know, we just ask them to forward some of that on to us. Um, but in general, when something is a is a corporately guaranteed loan, the uh, requirements with us are, you know, really uh, standard, right? So just not a lot of extra uh, requirements. When, you know, when we have a project finance loan, uh, like you have with some of these um, independent power producers or other non-utility entities, then we have to check reserve accounts, make sure that, you know, maintenance reserves are filled up properly, make sure they're doing all the things that they need to do to make sure that our asset that we're, you know, putting uh, um, a lien on uh, with our debt is actually being maintained and, you know, and done properly. Um, so so the, the rules are a lot uh, looser, frankly, with these um, uh, corporate guaranteed electric utility loans. No, that makes sense. And uh, the final the final question I have for you: When are these due by? When when do you need applications in the door? And how does that sort of what's that process look like? Well, you know the the, um, the I guess the answer would be that when you think about um, the statute, it says that we have to obligate this money by um, September 30th of 2026. Um, maybe working back from that, there's a couple of things that we've done to help the situation. One is that um, uh, we have in the interim final rule in the Title 17 guidance document made the point of obligation, the conditional commitment. So the loans don't have to be closed by September 30th of 2026. We have to issue the conditional commitment by September 30th, 2026, which is, you know, a little bit easier to achieve. And some folks take a year to close their loan after they receive their conditional commitment. Like, so for instance, the conditional commitment might say, we're going to commit this to you, but you have to get your public service commission vote and approval before you can close the loan. And so that process could happen after we do the conditional commitment. Um, separately, the statute, uh, asks us to make sure that all of the money is drawn by 2031. So all the projects should be, uh, the money all should be drawn by 2031. That doesn't necessarily mean that the projects have to be completed by 2031, but it does mean that you should be drawing our capital by 2031. Um, in terms of when we need to receive the applications, I'd say that, you know, a good safe timeline is a one-year process before the deadline. So let's call it September 30th of 2025 would be good for people to uh, to apply by. So that's, uh, you know, it gives you a little bit of time, but not too much time. Um, one thing that we are doing is we're streamlining a lot of our processes within the loan programs office. Um, these first projects that we've received will 
undoubtedly take the first take the full 12 months to get to conditional commitment but we are trying to shorten that process as um our legal team you know works out all the kinks on these first deals and we start to see things that look familiar to us we might be able to get these deals processed in as little as 5 to 6 months and so that is our goal which might give you a little bit more breathing room but i'd still think september 30th of 2025 in your in your mind as to when you should submit that application by. Makes sense. Don't do the paper the night before it's due. <laughs> I got I got you. Um well, I don't I don't have anything else in my my preloaded list of things I wanted to ask you uh other than to say thank you for for doing this and and what did I miss? What 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 do you have a burning desire to talk about that I did not ask you? Well, a couple of things I just wanted to make sure that we um highlighted were um just to remind everybody that this money can be used to help return a lot of the brownfield land that the utilities currently manage back into productive use. And so some of the utilities are starting to look at this as a way to accelerate draining their coal fly ash ponds, you know, getting that material put into green cement and then re and then repurposing that land into industrial use. I mean, we have less than 1% vacancy rates in this country for industrial use land. And so I've got 17 applications right now for manufacturing facilities and other kinds of facilities that frankly don't have a site, right? They want to build a solar manufacturing facility in this country and they can't find a place to site it. So, so a lot of what we're doing is reminding electric utility companies, hey, you have these brownfield sites. This will be a great time to turn that liability into an economic development asset that you can really help the community in terms of crowding in more jobs, et cetera, and you know, frankly, more economic development, which is one of the charters of all the utilities. And so that is something that we remind people of, and sometimes they forget and we're like reminding them to do it. Um, so I think that's uh, one of the big things. And then the other big thing that we're hearing a lot more um, enthusiasm about is I think a lot of the electric utility companies, frankly, are recognizing that the energy burden is real, right? We now have one in six households that are behind on paying their electric or gas bills. And that weighs on all of us. I mean, nobody wants to see our neighbors behind on their electricity or gas bills. Um, you know, it, it, it reflects on us as a wealthy nation uh, where we need to figure out how to help our fellow neighbors. And so what a lot of utility companies are doing is looking at this virtual power plant framework and saying, hey, how do we accelerate the use of um, energy efficient appliances, weatherization to help these homes actually be part of um, virtual power plants where they can engage in demand flexibility. And you see that in action, right? I mean, for a lot of the Tesla electric customers in Texas during the heat dome, they were able to get paid for their demand flexibility at such a high rate that it zeroed out their electricity bill for the entire summer, right? And so folks are starting to see um, this as an opportunity to help um, energy burden customers as well as other customers um, to uh, really reduce uh, their energy bills and make the energy burden less. And so I th we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm, frankly, from utilities who have made big commitments there, um, who frankly didn't see that avenue as uh, eligible for 1706. But, you know, they're retiring a 
old natural gas peaker plant over here, demand flexibility can replace that. So, you know, we're finding that replace, retool, repurpose definition is really uh, coming into focus. And then I guess one last thing I would say is that particularly for the rural electric co-ops and the um, the the municipal utilities, you know, a lot of them are slow to come to the 1706 program because I think they're uh, frankly looking at the nine point you know, $7 billion worth of money over at the uh, USDA. But, you know, I think when you look at how many people have applied for that money, as well as the GRIP money um, at the grid deployment office, these programs are oversubscribed by three or four X. And so a lot of folks are saying, well, Chigger, you know, let me wait to see what whether I get money out of that program. And, you know, we expect that several folks are not going to get money out of that program. And then once they don't get money out of that program, then they'll revisit using the 1706 program. And and we're certainly patient and happy to wait. You're waiting. Them. You're ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we're the water's always warm. We won't judge you for, you know, choosing those programs over ours. We um, are ready to serve you when you're ready to use us. Perfect. Uh, I appreciate it. I don't think I have anything else just other than to say thank you for doing this again. We'll, we'll have you back on in six months. So yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. And just to say that the partnership, frankly, with uh, with EEI and, you know, Nehruk and many of the other uh, folks, I mean, EPRI, I think has been a great partner as well, has just been fantastic. And I do think that um, you can never over-educate the audience. And so really thankful for all the opportunities to help uh, spread this message. Well, we, we appreciate the opportunity to keep working with you and uh, thank you. Good luck out there. And for anyone who has uh, any other questions on EIR, EIR, where can they find you? Oh, gosh. We always ask people to come to our website, which is, uh, you know, doe.gov. Just Google DOE LPO blog and uh, you can stay up to speed just like Alex does. It's a good read. I, I, <laughs> I'm not saying that just because you're on the on camera here with us. So I appreciate it, Tigger. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great summer. You too. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.